Hey guys, welcome to another TGS podcast. Today we've got John Clark and Tim Weston from the NGO on, and we're going to be talking about various things, including, but not limited to, uh, how coronavirus will affect the shooting season, what the NGO are doing, buzzard licensing, wildfires, and loads of other awesome stuff. So, enjoy. How is everyone, by the way? Are you all alright? Yeah, good, thanks, John. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, slightly yeah. stir crazy. Could do with getting out and about, but uh, yeah, it's good, good other than that. I think we can all sort of emulate that sentiment, can't we? Yeah, yeah, but we're all right. Yeah, good at the minute. How is NGO business? Good, we're keeping busy. Um, yeah, we're managing a lot of inquiries, like, you know, probably be talking about today, about, you know, can we go pigeon shooting, can we go shooting foxes, that kind of thing. So your current advice line is yes? Um, if you're a full-time gamekeeper, full-time pest controller, then yes, you can. And if anything else, not really, because uh, police forces are really interpreting it differently. So some forces are saying yes, you can. Others are saying no. So um, the safest bet is if you're a full-time gamekeeper or full-time pest controller, then yes, you are. If not, you're probably better not doing really. Okay. Fair and and so, uh, the other bit of advice I'm saying is check your local air force area, Johnny, because um, some are saying, I think North Yorkshire was one that said if the farmer requests it for specific uh, crop protection, it would be legal as long as you stick to social distancing. Um, other forces are saying it's only if you're employed. Wow. So, so it, it, and then you get the difficulty of, I live in South Yorkshire, but I want to shoot in North Yorkshire. And Police Force A have said, no, you can't. You're driving through that Police Force area to Police Force says, you can. You're, you're in a difficult place. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. So you guys are just advising no, unless your police forces say otherwise. Really, yes. That, that's, that's the case, really. And, and over on top of that, get it in writing from the police and the landowner or the farmer to say that is a necessity. Are you, are you, have you heard of any convictions or anything like that? Hearsay, yes, there's a couple, I think. Um, two, two in North Yorkshire had their firearms taken away from them. That that was, they were they were shooting without permission, though. Yeah, yeah. So, so they were on land, they didn't have permission to have land to be shooting on anyway. Yeah, so they just got there, just desserts, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's, there's somebody in South Yorkshire that's supposed to have had their tickets taken off them and told them they're not going to get them back. For that, for that reason, they were shooting and it wasn't deemed necessary. Um, and that's the worry. If, if, they're, if they're stopped by a police officer on the road, if they have a bump in the car and they've got a gun in the car with them, that's the worry, is that that officer may take a, a dim view on whether their journey was necessary. And worst case scenario, they're going to lose a ticket. Best case scenario, you've got probably, what, what two or three months of fighting to get your ticket back. Um, <laughs> And all the stress and that's going to be involved with that. So, and I think the other thing we've got to we've got to look at when I'm when I'm talking to people is that I think there's a big difference between need and want. And I want to go. I'm desperate to go and class the fly. I I'm, I look at the back of my house and there's a, there's a, the the Winterbourne runs along the back of the house. I'm desperate to go and class the fly. There, but there is a difference between need and want. I, I want to, but I really don't need to. And I think that's when I'm talking to people, when I'm saying, you know, the farmer's phoned me up and there's four billion pigeons eating his um, uh, wheat he drilled yesterday. 
right you know okay so so that might be you need to go you know and, and that's different between somebody phoning me up and john had a classic which i'm sure i'll tell you about hello i'm 84 and i'd want to go pigeon shooting how can i get around the rules <laughs> yeah, you know and i think the guy whatsapps you every day now doesn't he john to uh, check if he can still go or not that's that's a it's a different one that actually but uh, yeah yeah I've I've made some really good new friends that we can contact on a regular basis with <laughs> um, but yeah this this guy um, I think he was, he was seventy four I think he was and you know the, the guidelines from the government he shouldn't he shouldn't be out for twelve weeks regardless of mm. what he's doing um, so if he went out he's he's contravening the guidelines. So his, his, his ticket is definitely in jeopardy. Um, I do feel like there's a, a slight mental health aspect to all of this that I wouldn't say is particularly arguable, but it is important to bear in mind that we've all lost what we love. But I also am also aware that everyone else has too. But it, I can appreciate his point of view. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I can as well. I was having a chat to a friend of mine who lives in London, and he said there are scales of self-isolation say sorry scales of lockdown yeah and there's, there's there's mine for example where i live in a very rural part of wiltshire and john's in a very very similar position a very rural part of lancashire so i can literally walk into the savannah forest from the back of my house i live in the forest i can literally walk into the back of the forest and i have the the sporting lease in there so theoretically we're running a business from there so has my daily life changed i'm still working full-time for the ngo john and i both work from home remotely anyway so you can probably see we both have swedish log cabins you know because that's our home office so our working practices and our daily life haven't changed a massive amount right mm -hmm. and that will be for quite a few rural people not a massive amount but quite a few rural people farmers for example gamekeepers for example talking to a friend of mine in london who actually has a very nice house in london in in, in a very nice area with a big garden and I was thinking to him yesterday because he wanted to come stalking. Yeah. And I said, no, no, Jack, you can't, you can't come stalking. It's as simple as that. You can't come stalking. And he said, he said, well, he said, your lockdown's hardly changed anything. He said, mine's like moving to the countryside. Bearing in mind, he's very much a towny person. Yeah. And I, said, well, I don't get it. What do you mean? He said, well, he said, I can't go out when I want. He said, I can't get dinner at lunchtime. He said, because there's no bloody restaurants open. And he said, there's only one shop open. It's got nothing in it. He said, it's like moving to your village. <laughs> said, That's his reality of a lockdown. But he said, I'm, he looks across his garden to a 22 story block of flats. And he said, you know, that, now that's a very different lockdown. So I, I think it's bloody difficult. We all want to get out. There is a mental health, health issue for a lot of us. But a lot of other people have got it a lot worse. A hundred percent. She works in two two local hospitals, and I must say, when it first started, after about three days, I said, "I'm just going to grab the rifle and go and sit in the icy." She's like, "No, you're not." Well, I'm allowed to because it is part of my job. She said, "Yeah, but you don't have to." She said, "Yeah," and and I think so. Sort of brought it home a bit. She goes to work every day, not knowing what she's going to encounter. And by all of us doing what we're supposed to do, we're not going to impact on what potentially could happen in, in two weeks. I know it's pie in the sky and you can chuck a lot of statistics out. But equally, I think it's really important that we do do what we can do and what we're allowed to do to keep the economy going, the countryside going and our businesses going. So you, you, you've got a bit of a double edged sword.
Very much so. I think that's the hard line a lot of people are, are struggling with is where that line falls of trying to keep one's business going um, as well as, you know, trying not to be socially irresponsible, trying to not encourage people to leave their houses, which is what we're all being told we should definitely do. Yeah, and I think the hard thing is one rule for one, one rule for another. So um, I could easily grab my fly rod, although I'm not allowed to fish it, but I could easily grab my fly rod, go literally go 100 yards that way and walk for about a mile and not see a soul and actually be in less contact with people than I am in my own house because I've got a child and a wife. So why can't I go fishing? Why can't I go and sit in a pigeon hide on my own where I'm going to cause no impact to anybody potentially unless there's an accident, which is rare. I had a great statistic the other day. There were more accidents in 2019 caused by ping pong than there were by shooting. I can believe it. Yeah, I don't know if that's true or not, but I heard it. I can it believe sounds it. good. Let's use it. But so it's it's very it's very it's very difficult for a lot of rural people to understand. And a lot of people are using the term self-isolation. That's actually not the correct term. That's only if you're ill is when you need to self-isolate. You're not self-isolating. You are, you are locking down. You're not moving. And they're two different things. So self-isolation is I've got a fever of 37.8 degrees. I need to now self-isolate. So that includes being away from any one of your household. But what we're doing is we're in lockdown. So we're only leaving home for specific reasons. And one of the reasons is to go to work if you cannot do that job from home. So a gamekeeper can go about his daily business because he can't, he can't do it from home. It's impossible. A dairy farmer, a shepherd, a taxi driver, not he's got that job from home. Um, so there are instances where you would be. And that's why we say if you're a professional gamekeeper or a pest controller, actually, you're well within the law at the minute, the way it stands at the minute to carry on. So uh, talk to me about gamekeepers. You guys are obviously the frontline sort of first people to contact when any gamekeeper has an issue. What is the feeling on the ground with gamekeepers? In, in, in what way? What, in, so what, in, I presume most gamekeepers are still in work. There haven't been that many people laid off because of this. You know a couple, don't you, Tim? I think you, you know a couple that have been laid off. Um, I don't know anyone that's been laid off. I know a couple of estates that are mothballing for this year, but the keepers are still employed. Um, majority are, are, are carrying on to, to some degree, which, to be fair, is the, the, the I think that's the best option, really. Um, we've, got to, we've got to show some kind of solidarity here and say, right, well, if we, don't, if we don't go ahead, if we don't place an order with the game farm, the game farm's in trouble. If shooting does go ahead, or if you could shoot, the, the game dealers at the other end of the scale are in trouble as well because there's no game coming through. So we've got to try and keep that, that momentum going. And if you cast back to 2001 when foot and mouth, it was, a, I thought, okay, this is, a, this is an actual worldwide pandemic now. But, but then, you know, foot and mouth had a big impact, certainly up in the north on, on mm -hmm. shoots because farms were taken out with foot and mouth. You didn't know whether you were going to be able to shoot or not. And a lot of a lot of estates who were caught up in it, and, and we were what I was one of them. Um, we had one farm taken out, so we didn't know whether we were going to be able to shoot or not. But we said, right, well, what we'll do, we'll how much can we afford to lose, and that's what we'll go for. 
and we'll put birds down. And if we can't shoot, yeah, we're going to lose something, but we're not going to lose everything. And if we can shoot, at least we're going to be able to to get out there and shoot because we've got something to put down. And um, we, we've, oh, yeah. we're keeping the interest and the um, you know support of the game farmers and the game dealers at both ends of the of the scale. And there's a lot of estates that I've spoke to, and a lot of keepers and part-time keepers, full-time keepers, and they're all saying the same. We, we, we're going to do it, but we're going to do it to a lesser extent. Something that we can you know we can afford to lose if heaven forbid that does happen, but if it doesn't, we're still putting something down and we're still going to be able to shoot. And it seems a sensible thing. And it's like an, an analogy I used with Tim. I'm in a little grouse syndicate. Every year, first week in February, I get a, an email from the shoot captain saying, right, guys, pay your subs. That week, I pay my money with my account. I don't know whether we're going to shoot that season because that's grouse shooting. And I think people have got to probably take that on board a little bit this year. And, um, you know, that's what grouse shooters do. Because um, you never know what kind of a season you're going to have, rearing wise, what spring's going to be like. And I think that's it's probably a similar type of train of thought this year that the pheasant, pheasant shooters, partridge shooters are going to have to do the same. You pay your money, you take your chance this year, and hopefully it will all come good. I did a little video um, a few weeks ago, and my thoughts on the subject were very much it's time to put faith back in the shoots that have given you all that pleasure. Yeah. Because you want them to be there, not next year potentially, but the year after. And yeah. you should accept that perhaps you, you, you need to support the people you love uh, at this time, really. And the businesses that you love. Yeah. <clears throat> what I found quite interesting, Johnny, is um, the, the smaller syndicate. So the, 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 the walk one, stand one sort of hundred bird, plus type syndicates, um, the guns have said, I'm going to chuck my subs in, I'm going to pay some money and take some charts, right? And I think it's much along the same lines as the stalking syndicate I run. We've got 22 or 20 stalkers in the syndicate. They've all fully paid for next year. Um, they, they're, they're stalking restarted on the 1st of April and none of them have ever to come, but they've still paid their subs. Um, and it's it's very much like I think on those smaller levels, like like a MCC cricket club membership. There's no cricket. You sure as hell ain't going to give that up because there's a hundred year waiting list. And I think with some of these syndicates, that's the same the same thing. I, I play tennis. I've just paid my tennis subs. I'm not allowed to play tennis. It's our hobby. I think where the shooting certainly is slightly different is where we have. I don't want to call it tiers, but I suppose it is tiers of shooting. You get the the guys that have got quite deep pockets who can afford some slightly more senior days than I could afford. They're still going to take those days and pay the deposits, right? Because they can take that hit. You've got the guys like me, you, Johnny, and John Clark, there, who we're all in small syndicates and we've probably all paid our 700 or 2,000 pound subs. You know, it's going to be between that, that sort of money, isn't it? We've, we've paid that. And, if we lose it, we lose it because we pay it anyway. The, I don't want to call them the corporate shooting, but but the the less passionate shooting that's putting it through the business books. They're the ones that have said, we want the days, but we're not prepared to pay a deposit. Mm -hmm. And the other one I'm here, and which is doesn't help the shoot because the shoot doesn't actually need to take the risk. So a promise of someone buying a day is no good without a deposit. So 
the game farm can't be expected to take a risk. The game farm can't be expected to say, all right, I'll take that order for 10,000, 2,000, 12,000, 100,000, whatever it is. But don't worry, I don't need a deposit because the game farm is going to rear those birds. He's going to feed the birds and water the birds and medicate the birds potentially. It's going to get to July and the shoot are going to say, do you know what, I haven't had the deposits, I don't want them. And the shoot hasn't paid the deposit. So the game farm is now lumbered with birds that they've paid. They're probably going to go bust. And John mentioned about the game dealers as well. There'll be no game dealers. So I think the guys who are hanging on and saying there's going to be loads of cheap shooting at the back end of this year are wrong for a start. That's very uh, the predictions, I was talking to someone, I think so. I was talking to someone uh, last year, I think uh, earlier on this week, I think there's going to be substantially less birds released in terms of low ground shooting. There's going to be substantially less. Um, there's estimates from 20% to 55% less. Um, so there's a supply and demand issue there. Also, it, my personal view is, like you said, if you don't support the thing you love and you're hanging on for a cheaper product because people can't sell it, which I don't think will happen, um, I don't think the shoot owners should say to that person, actually, no, you're right, there's a 30% off for your because we still want to sell a 500 bird day to you. They should go back to everyone that's paid their deposit with the risk of losing it and said, look, we've got a few spare days. Do you want to buy one at a slight discount this, this year only? And the people that said, we're going to hold off and, and wait to see if there's any cheap shooting, charge them a 30% surcharge and make it more expensive for them. <laughs> you know, they're that desperate. I, uh, that's a personal view, but I, 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 think, I think we need to stick together. I think, I think shooters will buy shooting. Always. And a, a lot of shooters, yeah, a lot of shoots will carry on and a lot have taken the plunge. John mentioned some have mothballed. Some have, and that's purely because they couldn't get their deposits, but they've mothballed and not not closed. It's not one and the same thing. Um, there will be a couple will go, like with all businesses in this time, a couple will go. Yeah, it's um, rather depressing um, when you say a couple will go, but the beauty is that ground is still there and hopefully some carnation of those shoots will, will come back. I, I think yeah, so. I think there's always somebody will will step into the breach and that's the thing. Um, I think I think the ones that are mothballing seem to be the bigger commercial places that have, um, you know, will not be able to get the overseas clients. Yeah. You know, yeah. So you could understand that to still don't think they should have mothballed i think it's just they just should have just reduced numbers down to a you know what they can sell um but that's their that's their decision at the end of the day they, they may be just holding out and spring back up again uh, so what about, what about the grouse boys um well, <laughs> everything's much the same with them um you know we could have we could have the worst spring on record and have no shooting anyway that's you know this is this is that's grouse shooting. You pay your money, you take your chance. Um, gut feeling, I think probably August would probably be out anyway. Maybe some late 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 days in the season. Um, hopefully October, something like that. September, October time. It, nobody knows what's going to happen with this COVID nineteen. So you know we don't know. It's like into a crystal ball. Um, Obviously, they're still going about their business because they can they can work self isolate. They, they spend most of the time on their own up in the hills anyway. They're probably safer than anybody. Um, yeah. But yeah, 
it's just fingers crossed to, to hope that it's all over and done with by the 12th of August, but we're going to have to see. So I had a very interesting conversation uh, with a friend of mine the other day, and we were both interested. Talking worst case scenario, and nobody can come and shoot the grouse, or what happens? That's the, 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 the worry is that um, it's a really good season, good, really good rearing season, uh, say rearing season, really good spring, so they, they yeah. rear their own yeah. and everything goes on and really well, so we've got good numbers there. Uh, then we're in danger of having too many. Um, hopefully that won't be the case. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's all in the laps of Mother Nature, really, and where we can go. The worry at the minute, and where, where the, what the grouse lads are really worried about, is the number of people that are still coming out to Moorland and walking, um, which yeah. they've got every right to do. It's part of their exercise. But um, I've just been in a conference call today with the England and Wales Wildfire Forum. In England and Wales, since the 19th of March, we've had 35 wildfires that have been started by the public. Wow. That's for barbecues, arson, accidental cigarettes or whatever. So 35 in less than a month, or in just over a month, should I say. Um, and that is the worry now, because uh, in Lancashire, over the weekend just gone, we've had two big fires, both of them malicious. And one's took eight, eight, eight fire engines plus crew for nearly 36 hours. And the other one was a, a day with three fire engines and that's resources that we can't spare at this time yeah so that's that's one real, real big worry that the kid um you know certainly the one in um east east lanks keepers were on the ground for 36 hours without going home so you know they've got to they've got to be there 24 hours because it, it's when it's burning down into the peat and certainly with the wind we've got i mean even today it's blowing a gale it only needs one little tiny ember and, and that's going again. So they've got to be there 24-7 until it's completely out. Are these fires on grouse moors or are they on public ground or are they just a mix? Um, these two are on grouse moors, but they've been lit off off, off the road. Um, well, so, sorry, the one on this side, on the west side of Lancashire, that was somebody had built actually a fire pit in the middle of the moor out of stone so the so the remnants of the fire pit are still there uh had a fire in it the night before obviously they had left it that night or left it first thing in the morning there were still embers in the bottom it burnt down into the peat the wind had got up the following day and it got out of the the stone fire pit that they built and that was away and it was a, a person over the other side of the valley i believe that seen the smoke called the keepers and the fire brigade and they all turned up and they got it out in that day, but they were lucky. And this is, again, this is where we've got to look at upland management in a real sensible head. And we've got to be able to put fire breaks in. We've got to be able to keep on doing the management that we do and, and burning fire breaks and cutting fire breaks to be able to control these fires. If it's just left, then we end up with a massive, um, mat of big old rank heather impossible to put out certainly when we've had like two weeks of dry weather like we've had three weeks of dry weather good sunshine and a strong wind you know 
you're not going to stop that. It doesn't matter how many fire engines you've got, how many how many guys with Arca cats, fogging units, helicopters. Look at Winter Hill. You know, Winter Hill fire and what was the other one, Marsden Moor. I think that the, the cost for that was in pound notes is £21 million for those two fires alone wow. in 2018. So these so, fires that have been could have been much worse potentially? Yes, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I don't know the cost to, to, to actually... I uh, should have asked that today, actually, what the cost is to bring a, a, a fire engine out with crew. It's going to be in the thousands just per hour. I would have thought so, yeah. Um, the, the other thing, John, that's worth talking about, Johnny, because you'll know this from the video you, you did for us, is um, that these are now hot fires, so it's different to a fire a, a grouse keeper would have set. And John will know more about it. I got clue, but John will know more about what a hot fire is. I want to see you sweat and try and explain it to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good hot fires. It's um anyway, John. What's a hot fire? <laughs> <laughs> shame. Right. When gamekeepers are burning, they they burn from October through to the fifteenth of April. Generally, then the the ground is wet, it's damp, and they pick the days where it's not too windy, it's not been dry for so long, and they, they'll burn. The, flat, the fire will, will skirt across the top vegetation, burning the canopy of the heather out. It doesn't go, it goes across fairly quickly and leaves the stalk and everything else, but it doesn't damage the, the ground underneath. So it doesn't damage the mosses or any plants or, or the heather structure underneath it at all. Whereas a fire at this time of year, it burns a lot hotter. Um, and if we're not burning and taking vegetation out, so you get 15 years of buildup of deep vegetation in the bottoms, which, which causes then a big fuel load. Um, that in itself creates more heat, which then pushes it down through the mosses, which damages the sphagnum and everything else, down into the peat and starts burning peat. Once it starts burning peat, it's a real problem to put out. And also, we, you know, peat forms about one mil a year. So there's parts of Saddleworth that lost 30 centimetres, those, those 300 mil. Wow. So it's 300 years to get that structure back. And that's what we've got to really be careful about is we can't. Wildfires are getting more and more prolific. Now, put it down to um, global warming, more people on the moors, or less management. The, the argue, all three arguments are there. Um, you know, but we've, we've got to be able to put a management plan together to be able to cut fire breaks in so that we can control these fires when they do set you know and they will keep on setting you know we've got more people going out there these barbecues interestingly you know we're struggling at the minute to be able to go onto a triple si to set a trap and yet people seem to be able to go on there with a with a disposable barbecue and set fire to the place which doesn't really make sense there needs to be some kind of um you know realistic management there and, and regulation to stop that from happening otherwise you know at this time of year we curlews have got chicks or they're certainly sitting on eggs now they won't be so far off, off hatching plover all these birds that are red listed we, we you know there'd be nest burned over this weekend just in lancashire so in your head what does that legislation look like is that allow us to manage the more and will manage the people or is it less intensive than that? 
Well, we used to have, you know, there used to be rangers. We, we seem to have lost all the rangers now that were keeping people off the moors and, you know, or not off the moors, but managing where, what they could do. And that's, now, that's now left to gamekeepers who've got no real jurisdiction or, or time to do that, you know. Um, so it, it's getting the message out there to the general public that we, we really do, you know, and whether that's, um, it's been, excuse me a minute, whether, whether that message needs to go out more into the public domain from the fire brigade, and this is what this meeting was this morning, how, how we get that message out there to people, yeah, great, enjoy the moorland, but enjoy it responsibly and sensibly. There's so much damage, it costs so much money for a wildfire, just by one careless act. Or, or have, has anyone been prosecuted for making a wildfire, or is it, I guess it's a, you can't find it's a, it? It's early day. Um, People have been prosecuted in the past. There was uh, an incident in the Peak District this time, which I believe that is going to court, but I can't, I don't know any more than that and I can't really comment on that. Um, but it's, yeah, I believe they were, they were caught by the police. They, they'd set the fire going, scarpered when they were challenged by the gamekeeper. The vehicle was then circulated to the police and it was stopped in Yorkshire. So they've, I know they've got them, but what's going to happen to them, hopefully, it needs a really strong um, case, really, <laughs> fine or or a, a custodial sentence. Just to express how bad this is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Johnny, this is this is sort of a prime example of um, where the NGO is still working. People think people see John and Art shows and training course and stuff, and they think that's probably all we do. It's a tiny part of our role. John was in this meeting from half nine this morning till about midday, something like that. Just like we are over, normally you'd be in a room with them. So we're working slightly differently at the minute. But it, it's a vital role that the organisations play in keeping shooting going. It hasn't stopped. So just because we're in lockdown, it doesn't mean we've stopped. We're still working. We're still getting up in the morning. All right, our commute's only 15 seconds. But, you know, we're, we're still working. Um, We've, we're currently dealing with Natural England and individual licences at the minute. It's something the NGO are working on a lot, and it's been, been a huge, huge effort um, with the new general licences. At the minute, you can't trap tra on a triple SI, mm -hmm. which for a lot of shoots, especially us low ground guys, isn't a huge problem. But that's almost the entire uplands of England is a triple SI. These guys can't go and catch corvids to protect, like John was saying, plover and all those sorts of different birds. <clears throat> um, Natural England have had, uh, since the February, or since the, well, since the general license changed, over a thousand applications to be able to go on a triple SI to trap uh, predatory species to protect amber and red listed species. And as of today, guess how many applications have been granted as of this morning at nine o'clock? How many, how many? None. Not one application has been granted by Natural England as of today, because from my limited understanding of it, from the discussion I was having before I came onto this call, uh, and decided it's not viable enough. So they need to re-risk assess their own risk assessment and do another risk assessment of their risk assessment. Can, can, can one of you explain to me um, 
concisely the contention here. Why why can't you trap common predators on triple size? Well, Tim, I, I, I did the cool birding one. <laughs> so, <laughs> basically, it, it's it was all to do with part of the Wild Justice Challenge uh, last last spring on the general licensing total, and they were saying that there there hadn't been enough research and um, data into the damage caused on a triple SI by um, protecting those species that probably made it a triple SI in the first place. And I, I'm, I'm really, Johnny, I'm really putting this into layman's terms. Yeah, it's, no, it's, I can appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. It, is, it is a bit more complicated than I'm, than I'm making it out. But, but there, there, there are things within there that says oh, oh, we can't trap or shoot within 300 metres of a triple SI either. Um, which makes it quite quite complicated on the new general license in England. So the idea was that keepers, landowners, um, wildlife trusts could apply for a license, an individual license, relatively simply and relatively easily to be able to carry on. That simply hasn't happened. And the NGO are working really hard on this. And what are we now, 22nd of April, something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So... Well, John's just said you've got curlews on the moor sitting on eggs. Hopefully, hopefully you have, because they haven't been eaten by crows. Um, we've, got, we've got stone curlews at the back on the downs, the back of the house here. Um, hopefully they haven't been eaten by crows because it's chalk downland, which is a triple SI. So the keeper up there needs an individual license. He's applied. Um, I look after two sheets in the Savonette Forest, which is a triple SI. I've not been able to set a Larson trap or anything at all to catch a crow or a magpie. And we've got, I think we've got 11 amber-listed songbirds in there that nest within the woodland. Uh, my license has been four and a half, five weeks since I applied for it. And I've heard, all I've had is an email saying, yes, we've had your license, thank you. Wow. Um, it's very complicated. It's taking a considerable amount of NGO time to get to the bottom of this. And we've, those who follow the NGO social media account and various other things will have seen, we've, we've written a very robust letter to the minister saying what's going on. We've done the same to Natural England and DEFRA. We've done follow-up emails and letters and phone calls and conference calls beyond belief, beyond timing and amount of hours and it's it's moving quickly there are things changing all the time and the team dealing with it which actually isn't john and i but the team dealing with the defra and natural england are hopefully making progress but it's, it's just i just wanted to highlight for people who are watching this that we're not all just sitting at home mowing the grass we, we are still working as we would be working normally um just slightly differently you know probably if you and i and john were going to do this five weeks ago we'd have met on a shoot somewhere and sat down in the shoot lodge wouldn't we yeah it would have been very pleasant <laughs> exactly so so our working our working practices are different but but we are still there defending field sport you know and i i, I do want to make that point i think that's quite important no i 100 percent agree with you so uh we, we spoke about the fact that uh the Average Joe who's just gone out to the country for a walk is suddenly making more wildfire issues up north. What are we suffering any issues down south uh, that you've heard of, Tim? Yeah, I mean, the, the sheer volume of people into the countryside now, it is, I've never seen anything quite like it. 
And again, I'm in really two minds about it. I spoke earlier on about the two different types of lockdown for two different types of people. We're lucky, I'm lucky. Um, someone coming out of Swindon to my part of the world to actually see some air and life and things, can you begrudge them that? No, not at all. No, I don't think you can. It's quite nice that we're able to share our environment with them. Um, it's, what opportunity. it's a huge opportunity as I see it. It's just how we would utilise it, but time is slipping. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, and I think the, the issues that have been faced by keepers I know is uh, potentially putting them in, in, slight, in danger into the uh, rural environment. They're, they're, you're taking from a, an urban environment is where most COVID-19 cases are. Uh, there's very few in, in the in the in the uh, rural environment so potentially you're bringing uh, a densely packed diseased population into a sparsely populated area where you can spread the disease so that that's an issue and one keeper in nick up, up near london um has a, got a kissing gate outside his house he's got a, a footpath at the front of his house and a kissing gate and he put a, a tra trail camera on the kissing gate and over the easter sunday had 180 people go through the kissing gate families okay well, he's definitely got covid 19 if he kissed everyone well, exactly. But he, he then made a sign, which he put on social media. I've been trying to find it since John. I can't find it again. It said, on Easter Sunday, 180, people, 180 families walked through this gate. All but one had, did not have gloves on. 179 people touched the handle of this gate and then carried on their walk. And it's outside his garden. And that's what he was, wasn't cross they were walking, but it was just the senseless sort of risk-takingness of it. Whereas if they got on a bus in a town, they would probably sanitise their hands and all the sort. Just because it's the countryside doesn't make it less dangerous. Mm. We've also seen another thing. We've seen a heck of a lot of dogs in the countryside. Oh, yeah. And I'm in the canine sense of the word. Um, they're, they're, um, we've, had, we've had quite a few... <laughs> John Shedrick is... <laughs> we've... Um, we've had... <laughs> Yeah, we've had quite a few deer killed, and it, it, it is the same as on the moors. There are nesting birds now. It is what happens at this time of year. And out-of-control dogs, no matter what the owner thinks, do chase wildlife, and they do chase sheep. And even the police have been, or various forces across the country, have been all over social media saying, please control your dogs. Um, the Forestry Commission have now developed a sign where they never did before. They never had signs up saying, keep your dogs on leads. So in Forestry Commission woodlands that, are, that are, have high public access, there are now black and white signs that say, if your dog is out of sight, it's not under control. Um, and I think if people can stick to that, I think we can share the countryside with them. But I think there could potentially be a wildlife crisis on the horizon if we can't do vermin control, pest control, fox control, corvid control. And that, that not just talking about the general license issue, I think that combined with the, I want to say amateur shooters out there who do oh, an awful yeah. lot. Yeah, they do an awful lot of good for wildlife. Um, killing and trapping predatory species and the DIY part-time keepers who are not able to do it. And I think potentially it could compound um, what is already a very fragile um, environment. After last year's already fragile year, Having a, having a second year of that is not going to be particularly beneficial to anybody. No, no, definitely not. I mean, one of the one of the keepers that were on one of the, one of the fires on in East Lanks 
the other day. He's been on that estate for 30 years and he said over the last three weeks he's never seen so many people on on the moors as what he's seen over the last three weeks. I said, I've seen 30 years of his experience on that moor. You know, so that, that in itself has got a massive knock-on effect with wildlife on the ground at, this, at this, this time of year. So, uh, like Tim says, I, I see it from multiple angles. Um, and I see it as a huge benefit. The amount of people who are now experiencing the countryside who perhaps never would. Uh, over and above that, the amount of families that are getting family time over and above that they usually would, I think is probably one of the most beautiful things about this is watching entire families just go for a walk in the countryside. And I've, How often do you see that now? Very, very rarely, really. And I, I, have, I, I live in a town, but I luckily got a wildlife reserve behind my house. I go walk in there every, every day, regardless of lockdown or not. And seeing people out enjoying it. And you can, I've seen over the course of lockdown, more and more people can see them walking slower, engaging more in wildlife. And I think there is something good that can come out of this from at least people appreciating the countryside. Whether that is, whether they appreciate it in the right way or not, it's a step better than not appreciating it, not appreciating it at all. Definitely. And I, I, I think we're not trying to keep people away what, we, what we're, we're saying is if you're going to come to the countryside act responsibly act, you know reasonably appreciate what's there and respect it and come back and you'll be able to enjoy when you come back again you it'll be still be there to enjoy again what, what, that, that's, what, that's the message really what can we do as a community to help, help that along i think engagement's key but engagement's really difficult at um a time of social distancing <laughs> so I think when this is over, that's the time to that's the time to look at it to see if these people still come back to the countryside. Which part of me says, as soon as the pubs and clubs are back open again, I'm not going to see anyone from Swindon or Bristol, right? And I know that sounds awful, but if 10% of them can still come, that's the time to engage. That's the time to engage. I think I think the message at the minute is the countryside is a living, working environment. It, it it's it's a big open air factory, isn't it? where all our food's produced and it's and, an important and, factory time of year as well it's a very intensive point yeah exactly and we've got we've got lambs field lambs being born there there's cows being born there's all sorts of things going on that people can see for the first time so they can they can learn that actually it doesn't come from a packet it comes from an animal and hopefully they'll notice that and then when we're out of social distancing which i think will be a while um I, I think that's when we we will because we're all on our patch we all know the local people who walk the local routes and you know who they are you may not speak to them but you recognize the vehicle you recognize the dogs you recognize the, the walkers now we're seeing more and more more people some of those will keep coming and that's when to engage when we can engage properly i think but for now i think social distancing is more important than engagement i know that sounds really weird yeah. and i never thought you know who thought five weeks ago we'd all be saying that. So imagine um, last year if you told someone what was happening now would happen. No one, no one would bet on it. Oh, well, I tell you a classic example, the British shooting show, right? Uh, Wuhan was in the grips of where we are now. They're at the start of lockdown in China. We're all at the shooting show having a brilliant time. I, you know, I saw you there, Johnny. I was working with John. Um, we had thousands of people through the show, through the stand. And not one of us thought in four and a half weeks after that, yep. we would all be in our front rooms wondering what the hell was going on. So 
Um, one of the things I'm, I think is key with the social distancing, self-isolating social distancing, not the same, I think we've got to remember that. If we keep social distancing, the travel restrictions will, will reduce quicker, mm -hmm. but I don't think social distancing will. So I think social distancing will be with us for a while, but if, if we can show we're all grown-ups and we're all sensible and we don't secretly meet seven families for a barbecue in the back garden because you've got a tall hedge no one can see. It has been tempting. It, it really has, hasn't it? You know, and actually yesterday I got a call from, from a, one of the Forestry Commission guys saying he was on his own, a tree had come down across the track. He's not allowed to chainsaw on his own. Could I just go up to the woods and watch him stand three metres, five metres, ten metres away, just watch so he could then use his chainsaw because they're all working individually. Otherwise, you know, so everyone's working lives are different. But if we can keep the social distancing up, things will relax quicker, which will help us come September, be back into the shooting season when social distancing will hopefully be relaxed by then. Or sorry, John August the 12th. I meant August. I didn't mean that. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but I, I think the countryside is showing that it can play its bit. And I, and I actually think that the work the grouse keepers have done needs highlighting more. Yeah. Um, putting fires out and the, the the murals they put into the moor for the NHS, various other things. You know, uh, a, uh, a seven-year-old kid in a block of flats puts a picture up of a rainbow. Fantastic. I think that's really admirable. But a keeper goes out and spends an entire day making his point known to anyone that flies, walks or drives across a moor. Um, it doesn't get looked at. These guys are supporting the NHS massively as well. And those grousekeepers are, are doing an important role in terms of, of a free fire service, a privately paid fire service. That needs emphasising as well. There's a, there's a lot of estates as well, low ground as well as up uplands, that have been donating kit. So face shields, a lot of the grouse lads use uh, face shields for heather burning. So they're being donated to the NHS. Eye protection, you know, shooting estates, they've all got eye protection that they give to beaters and everything else. They're all going to the NHS as well. Uh, gloves, you know, a lot of goodwill going out there from the shooting community. So I think there's uh, there's been a huge amount of effort put forward by the country community. I'm sure you guys have seen thousands of raffles out there, thousands and thousands of pounds being made and raised by shooters, hunters, whatever you may call us. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think the... But actually, as a shooting community, we've got a history of supporting things anyway. Mm. This isn't a new thing. We've always raffled for NHS and, um, uh, you know, um, final care homes and various other good causes. It, it's, not, it's not a new thing. I, I, I just think at the minute, people will donate a bit more and give a bit more when they can. I mean, there are some people who shoot who work in a factory that's had to be closed down or in a pub and they're furloughed and they they probably don't have the disposable income to do it but it's really interesting that they're still sharing it they're still helping push the promotion and, and I, I think that's really really admirable i think that's that's a good thing mm. something we touched on earlier do you think shoots could go ahead with social distancing i i, I think that's going to depend on the shoot and I had this exact conversation with three keepers this morning, three separate keepers this morning. He phoned up to see what I thought and what their plans were. And 
So uh, a shoot that is relatively condensed with a relatively small number of drives fairly close together could probably, let's say we're still in social distancing, the beaters could probably walk to the drives. Mm -hmm. So therefore not have to get in the beaters wagon and stay apart. That's not going to be an issue. Likewise with the guns. You know, you can travel in, in, in an eight car convoy if you wanted one in each car. Some of them do that anyway. Yeah, but you know, so, so that wouldn't be an issue. I think the issue comes is when you are looking at transportation. I think that would be the only instance I think social distancing would apply to shooting. Um, and you could even sit three metres apart at dinner if necessary, you know. So I, I think it's the transport would be, would be the issue. Um, there would be ways around it of many vehicles, many beaters, trailers with few people on them. Mm -hmm. uh, walking, it's quite a novel idea, isn't it? Um, so th th there will be ways around it. The shooting community is a really innovative, innovative one. We always find a way where we can keep within the law and produce what we need to produce. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and, I, and I think it will also be quite important. Um, I don't actually think it will come to this with the predictions my wife's work seeing and stuff, but it potentially could. It could. Um, I, I think um, given the mean age of most low ground beaters, social distancing potentially. I think when most shoots and most keepers actually look at their drives and think hard about how they do it, I think it's achievable if you don't have a lot of road work. Yeah, it's simple as that. Yeah, drop, you might have to drop a couple of drives because you're not going to get to them quick enough and the guns have to accept you're going to shoot. Well, and maybe maybe you're not going to be able to blank in as much, so there won't be as much in a drive because it's getting around the stuff, isn't it? Um, but potentially, I, I think it's doable, even with social distancing. I personally think it's doable. I really do. And I think I, I don't see why we can't be enjoying standing on a peg sometime this September or sit, standing in a butt. I don't think it'll be August. I agree with John. I don't think it'll be August, but I, I, I think... Sometime in September, standing in a butt, standing on a peg, shooting a grouse or a partridge, and then thinking back to the time we were sitting in our sitting room playing Hunter Call of the Wild on the Xbox, imagining shooting, you know. <laughs> you completed that yet? <laughs> no, I'm a bit addicted to it now, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think also the, the, the one we've got to remember is... Um, there are going to be, I think the one that's going to be hit more than the actual driven shooting is going to be the more commercial deer stalking. Okay. Because I, I, I think we're going to lose a lot of the foreigners traveling to shoot roebucks. And that's where quite a big percentage of the income comes from is roe stalking. And a lot of that is May, June, and then again in August. And I, and I think it's whether it's, I don't think it'll be to do with lockdown. I think it'll be whether the foreigners will be willing to travel. It's, uh, it's interesting you say that. I think that was the first thing that came up on everyone's lips when the lockdown first came in, as everyone was saying, all my robot clients have cancelled. This was obviously the first major season in the, uh, apart from fishing, uh, that, that is upon us. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I mean, again, stalking and fishing are fairly comparative sports in terms of how much they cost. Uh, sorry, fly fishing and stalking. Yeah. In terms of how much it costs per day, 
and the fact you are pretty much on your own and even stalking with a guide you can easily be three meters apart and stick within social distancing so it shouldn't be affected but i think what's going to happen is it's going to be the traveling that's going to be affected and you know i'm still like i said at the very beginning i'm still really annoyed i can't go fishing but it, it's at the minute it's the traveling that's the issue and that's the advice john and i have been giving to people as well you you can only travel for very specific reasons and going to cast a fly is not it's not one of them unfortunately unfortunately for sure so i mean this whole uh, I'm not going to spring this upon you in any sense. I'm sure you guys have talked about it plenty. The whole COVID-19 has really obviously threw a spanner in the works to the, the issues that we were thinking about that we thought were massive issues, those being the general license and that of uh, the lead and steel issue. I would like to talk first on the general licenses. Um, uh, more about the general license than anything is where are we at with that currently? Well, I think, I think it's as I, sorry, dog. I think it's as I, um, I said, earlier on the, the general licenses have been issued there are general licenses the new ones were deferred they're not going to come out for a bit whilst they're re-looking really at them we're working on that behind the scenes every day almost all day as an organization and there was this interim period for triple SIs where where you had to apply for an individual license which simply is not working and we are putting a huge amount of pressure on DEFRA and the ministers to get that sorted and there is a general positive vibe about that from the work we're doing as an organization we're doing everything we possibly can to get the right outcome um when you're dealing with effectively two governmental quangos that can be quite difficult um we're making the right noises and we're making the right progress and, and um the, the guy the guy who who's leading for the NGOs, a chap called Charles Nodder, who most people probably won't have heard of, but he is singly one of the, one of the most brilliant people in dealing with government on these issues. That he's second to none. And he keeps himself very well under the radar in terms of, for example, if we asked you to interview him, he'd say, I don't really do interviews. Um, but he, he will be at the forefront. I'm, I'm sure he will get the right outcome for the NGO and our members and therefore everybody else. Um, so I, I think we will get the right outcome. I, I just think DEFRA are running a bit scared at the minute of us and Wild Justice. <laughs> they really don't know what to do about it. Against the rock and they've got themselves against a rock and a hard place at the minute, I think. And I, I think they've proverbial probably painted themselves into this corner that they, they, they don't have an answer of how they're going to get out of it and I think that's the problem we've got at the minute it's just like a stalemate type of situation but are they taking uh, justice seriously oh yeah I mean they are taking it DEFRA are taking it very seriously which is why they're taking so long about trying to get it what they see absolutely correct but it's it's scientists talking to scientists and in my opinion coming with out with a-level geography student work um it it's taking them too long to produce something that shouldn't be that difficult and that's the message we're giving to them and, and the NGO are being really firm on this really firm we're, we're giving no quarter to them we're not going for half measures 
So I'm fairly convinced when we get the result, which can't be long away now, it will be the right result for shooting. So do you communicate with Wild Justice at all, or are you both very much apart? Uh, no, we don't communicate with them at all. No. It's, I mean, uh, Wild Justice are a, a politically stunt-driven organisation, as far as I'm concerned, and the NGO are, 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 are a serious membership organisation who've got the uh, better the the uh, members' interests at heart, and and British wildlife in terms of gamekeeping and shooting. So, you know. The, the white noise that's produced by quite a lot of these people, sometimes the best thing is not to give them any airtime mm -hmm. because, you know, I think they'll probably just get bored of it eventually and do something else. But we won't. We're here for gamekeeping. We've been here for over 20 years. Um, we've won some massive battles in the past. And as an organisation, we're not scared to take them on. As Buzz of Licensing showed, we're not scared to take government on. So, you know, I think the more noise we let them create and we share and we, 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 we're falling into their hands, whereas, I, I mean, I read something today, their, their latest um, challenge isn't going to make the funding because it's, it's been covered up in news by COVID-19 and various other things. They haven't had that mouthpiece. And we, I think we, we help them by, by, by fighting with them. Um, so sometimes it's, sometimes it's better just to let the white noise go away. No, I totally agree with that. Absolutely, totally agree. No, that's, a, that's a very solid point and I think a very good standpoint as well. Just to, And you are right. They, they, we've always had opposition, but they, they do come in little peaks and troughs, don't they? And hopefully this peak will disappear shortly. Yeah. Where we're at the peak, are we, Johnny? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the curves only... <laughs> we're all very, we're all experts on curves, now, aren't we? <laughs> so, uh, and and f I say finally, I'm sure we'll end up doing something else. But and if you're not comfortable to talk about it, I'm happy not to because we've talked about it quite a lot in other regards. Uh, lead and steel NGO is obviously behind this five-year transition. Um. We signed we sign the, the letter that says um, we think it would be a good idea if shooters voluntarily moved across to the shop. Um, uh, you and I have had a separate conversation about this about five months ago, Johnny, didn't we? And I, you know, I, we've we've done some work on non-toxic rifle bullets. Now we, we were in the middle of it. We've had to stop, obviously. Um, I, I've got my personal views on on non-lead ammo and I've used it in shotgun cartridges and it works. I killed some, I missed some and I wounded some. Just like I do with lead. You know, I killed some, I wounded some, I missed some. So um, I, I think the, the major thing that happened with the whole social media shouting is people read a third of the first line of the release and then got on their computer and went Billy Bonkers. And they used words like leg ban, um, let down, uh, capitulation. Um, none of that is true. What actually happened is the shooting organisations wrote a letter to the shooters to say, look, chaps, do you think it'd be a good idea if voluntarily we move away from this product and we look at this product? And 
that is all it was right so i think the whole thing got blown out of proportion and i think we've got to be a bit more grown up about these sorts of things in the future and when you're talking to game dealers and they they find it easier to move a certain product than another product we, we've got to we've got to take that on board we've got to look at that we've got to look at that um we're not talking about in five years from a month ago everything's going to stop because that was never on the cards it was a it was it was more of a why don't you try it guys and see what you think and if you think it works move over to it yeah and it's also putting pressure on to well, not pressure but you know encouraging cartridge manufacturers to to start looking at it and promoting it more and, and producing more and you know in five years time just think how, how much research and everything else can go on in five years to to, to get a product that will be equally as good and it's it's just it's just getting that taking those first steps and all the way if you look back through all the way through shooting there's always been these issues that everyone's gone oh my god it's the end of the world Entral being one of them in pheasant rearing you know, that was that was that was for every keeper who reared and i was one of them that was the end of the world and now we're talking about reducing antibiotics down to this level that 20 years ago would have been unheard of but these are the steps that we make these this is this is progress and you know sometimes it's difficult sometimes it's difficult to make that decision that we're going to go down this route but this is progress and we look back at this again in 10 years time and think well we've, we've got a really good product lead will probably still be there whatever I'd, who knows but we, we need to make these steps to 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 in, make, ensure that shooting carries on in the future i'm 100 agree with that that one we have to stay relevant we have to stay relevant and not appear archaic if nothing else if, if we don't legislate or and legislate's the wrong word but if we don't make the right steps to do the right things somebody else will do that for us on which will be a lot worse to deal with so i mean i obviously down south that i'm sure i don't know what your feeling is to what you've heard but there's a fair split i'd say 50 50 of those who are yeah i like this idea and 50 50 of this is the worst thing since sliced bread what is the feeling with grouse shooters um to be fair the the, the monday it all broke um i had a meeting that monday evening in yorkshire with and 70 keep grouse keepers turned up and I thought this is going to be an interesting and there was there was a couple of comments that said well we could have handled it better you could have you know put it out there a bit sooner or just I could agree with that but you had to do it at some point it was never going to be easy but out of all of those people in that room they all said it was coming it, yeah. it, we, we had to make that decision we had to make that move it was coming it wasn't a surprise to him and it actually covered out of I was there for what two and a half three hours I was probably talking for an hour and a half and then an hour in the bar later on. There was no other talk about it than probably about 10 minutes in the meeting. And nobody else was bothered about it. It, it was just, well, if that's the route we're going to have to go down, that's the route we're going to have to go down. Johnny, I think what, you, what you've got to remember from, from an NGO membership point of view is the the vast majority of our members are gamekeepers, whether they're full-time professional, amateur or DIY, you know, part-time. Lead's actually a 
relatively small issue when we're looking at being able to trap on a triple SI. We, we've, we've lost the fen trap. We, we, we're reducing antibiotic use by 70%. Um, rearing practices are going to have to change. So you can't kill them with lead or steel, but no one's saying you can't. So just try something else. So, and I think most professional keepers see the bigger picture and, and think, it's, it's, it's five years down the line. Let's deal with the now. Let's deal with the real issues we've got where we can't, we potentially couldn't kill vermin, uh, potentially couldn't rear any birds. Well, if you can't rear them, what hell does it difference? It doesn't matter if you've got lead or steel anyway. So, so from, from an NGO membership point of view and an NGO organisational point of view, some battles are far more important to put a huge amount of resources in than others. And asking people to give a non lead alternative a go it was yeah you know we'll ask them to give them a go but let's carry on fighting the good fight with the dot trap the tully trap you know let, let's keep on with natural england about general licenses about individual licenses about triple SIs, about buzzard control about other predatory birds you know working working with the with the raptor guys about taking peregrines into into captivity and th th there's so much going on and one of the things the ngo are really bad at is telling you lot. We, we, we do so much behind the scenes and we, we, we very rarely shout about it. We sort of pat ourselves on the back and say, well, did we do well there? And you guys can carry on doing what you were doing anyway and never even knew there was a threat. Um, and I think that comes with having a very small team. So the NGO split, for those who don't know, um, John looks after Northern England and Wales. And I look after Southern England and East Anglia. That's everything um, below the M4, yeah? So, yes, Southern England is definitely below the M4. So, um, and, and um, I quite like the odd trip to the Scilly Isles, but I haven't managed to get there yet. Um, we, we, we have, a, we have three, three members of staff who work in the office. That's it, total of three. And then we have um, a couple of other contractors who pretty much work for us full time. Alan Barrell, our firearms advisor. We've got a firearms department, one, and Charles Nodder, who I mentioned, being another one. So we're a really small team, and we do an awful lot with our with our membership subs. And what we don't often have is the time to really shout about it or or, or the expertise, because John and I are both ex gamekeepers. Um, <laughs> it's it, sometimes it's just not there we're run by by a committee of gamekeepers we don't have an executive board that are paid they're all volunteers so so sometimes our message does get washed under the carpet a little bit and um, and actually in terms of the lead issue we didn't i mean john john we didn't get a lot of flack from our membership over it because i think the issues i said they're actually quite a sensible forward th thinking group of shooters well I, I think you put it perfectly there that actually this is actually a really non-issue by comparison to many other things that are being fought that are huge countryside and conservation issues this this is quite well it is fairly black and white to me at least but it's it's not a big issue i don't think it's a big well it's not a big issue by comparison like you say for example losing antibiotic use which is a good thing but is a much bigger change but doesn't affect the average trigger puller no it's well well they don't think it does they don't think it does but exactly they don't care yeah potentially if if the game farmers and, and gamekeepers who rig can't get the techniques right and i remember it sure as well i can remember it being the end of driven shooting when we lost central it was a disaster 
Um, so do you know what we did? We put three extra sheds in, put less birds in a shed, improved our husbandry, and it was fine. The costs went up a little bit, right? That's all that happened. Now, antibiotic use potentially is the same. We change our husbandry, we look at the poultry industry, we get slightly better at what we're doing, we change our kit. I, you know, I don't have the answers yet, because we're in year two, and, and it's still been worked out. But the game farmers and keepers that rear have managed to reduce, I think it's something like 70%, John, isn't it? The, the reduction getting, in antibiotic use. getting that way now, I think, yeah, yeah. So just in, just in a year, a year and a bit of rearing, we've managed to reduce by changing our techniques, 70% of the antibiotic use in game bird rearing, just by changing our techniques and, and the way we're looking at things. Now, that takes a lot of forethought and some pretty smart gamekeepers and game farmers out there to, to look at, okay, what are my processes? How can I improve that? How can I streamline that? And where we say, well, it doesn't really affect the shooter, but actually if they were rearing 100,000, and they can only raise 70,000 because of the new techniques, their fixed costs are going to be the same. So it does affect the shooter because the price might go up a little bit per bird. Or, or they get it so it doesn't. But all these things need working out. Or we, need to, we need to be quite smart on these. And I think that's where a lot of work gets in behind the scenes that the shooters don't see. And would you know i wish they would see see what goes on behind the scenes and that's why talking to people like you john is great because they will watch it and they will see it and they will think you know i have no idea the ngo have spent the last three years with the game farmers association trying to reduce the amount of antibiotics in in game bird rearing no idea we have it's been it's it's been a, a really interesting process a really interesting walk through you know We've probably spent more time emailing Natural England over the last 18 months than in the history of governmental departments ever with, with various things that are going on. So, you know, the, the lead, people are calling it a lead debate. I, I, don't, I don't think it is a debate until people have actually tried it. And then they can have the debate. So have you tried it? No. Well, you can't have an opinion. Go and use it. See what you think of the stuff. For a extended period of time, not a shot. So all of last season, I mean, I don't shoot a huge number of days, but all of last season, I used steel shot. The whole of last year. And like I said earlier on, it was fine. Right? It was absolutely fine. I'm not a great shotgun shot anyway. So um, it's hard to tell. <laughs> it's hard to tell with me. But, you know, we, we are doing some, some good research on rifle ammo in the deer legal calibers from 243 and 308 at the minute. It's too early to tell. We're doing that in conjunction with the Game Conservancy. They're doing the analytic, uh, analysis for us. Um, and that, that research involves shooting actual deer with... What, not jelly? Know, not jelly. We're at, we've actually shot animals with it. We shot, we're at about 250 animals now. Um, all with lead alternatives and uh, the results haven't gone across the game conservancy because we got stopped before we could finish so we need to shoot uh, i think 400 for the statistician to get the right number of a deer with the right number of controllers the right number of that controllers. is a different amount of species as well that is across the board yeah so uh yeah so it's the, it's the small medium and large so uh, we're not 
we haven't split it into fallow seeker Chinese. It's small, medium, large because the, the bone density, the skin thickness is roughly the same on all of the, the sized animals. Yeah. Um, and it's different where the conditions are recorded, different operators are recorded, different calibers, different rifles, different brands, different bullets. So all the manufacturers have given us their bullets to try. And th the performance from what I've seen with my own eyes, it varies widely. A lot, yes, from my experiences. And not just from bullet to bullet, but from rifle to bullet as well. So if you've got a rifle that shoots most 95 grain 243 bullets in about the same place from Hornaday, Seiko, Winchester, RWS, whatever, what we found in the non-toxic is it probably won't. It'll shoot one brand brilliantly, another brand horribly, yeah. and another brand okay, which doesn't tend to happen in non-leg in lead, sorry, battery ammo, it tends to be relatively consistent. Yeah, well, you, uh, my, I was, well, explained to me once quite simply, the difference between the two is it will be more fussy with copper because when you shoot a lead bullet, it just goes poof and fits your rifling perfectly within nanoseconds. Whereas copper, it needs to be the perfect head to barrel to load workout. Yeah, and that, that's what we're finding. But like I said, it's really early days. We haven't got the data. I've got some data sheets here actually, but we haven't got the data, hasn't been analysed yet. But this is all stuff the NGO are doing. And you've no, never written about it. Nobody knows about it. About it. So, um, you know, it's quite an interesting bit of work again, um, and it will be published next, sometime next year. It will get published. Um, and, and, you know, John does an awful lot of work up on the moors with, the, with uh, some of the groups up there, the, the, you know, the, 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 the county group, uh, the, sorry, the uh, Mauler groups. Um, and again, it's not something we, really shout about it's it's a, it's a very low-key organization we put our head down we do our job we get it done so um, you guys can go and sit in a pigeonhole on saturday morning well if we could if only we could <laughs> yeah uh, I'm, there's only one last thing i'd like to touch on before the end and it's probably more contentious than everything else but you've touched on it twice is buzzard licensing yeah uh, how common is that um, it's really variable, Johnny, and the conditions to get a license are relatively strict and you need to meet certain criteria to get one. But the guys who meet the criteria actually have the licenses issued relatively, or were, I don't know this year, having the licenses issued relatively quickly for problem birds. So it's not a blanket license. It's not a license that says you can go and shoot every buzzard on your estate. It's not like cormorant licensing now. It's like cormorant, li cormorant licensing was. Yeah, it is. But in theory, so in law, the buzzard and the cormorant have the same level of protection. So one of our arguments is it should be the same as cormorant licensing. Um, but it's not. So, so that, that's an issue. So basically, you've got a, um, you know, pheasant pen A every year has a family of buzzards nesting in a tree and every year they kill 16% of your pods. I'm plucking figures from the air here, right? And, and you've recorded that. You've got that written down in your notebook that's in the glove box of your truck. And you've taken the odd picture of the pole and all that sort of stuff. That's your evidence. So you've got two years worth of evidence. These things have done this. You apply for a license and relatively quickly, naturally England come back and say, you have a license to shoot the problem birds that are in that pen. It doesn't mean you can shoot that bird over the other side of the estate because it's causing the problem in that pen. Does that, does that make sense? So it's relatively specific, um, which again, 
we, you can't have a problem with because if you can sort the problem burnout that's causing the damage in the specific area it's causing it, you don't have that damage, you don't have that problem anymore. Therefore, you've done what you needed to do. I presume that does not translate to grouse moors. No, because it's, it's proving damage is very, very difficult. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's, a live, it's livestock, so it's only in pens. If you notice, I use the word pen a lot. Yeah. So at the minute, it's wild birds is much more problematic, but it's something else we are working on. I think that's very interesting. Uh, I think, again, something that nobody knows that you guys do apart from your, well, more dedicated gamekeeping members. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but it's good, it's good to be able to get it out there and let people know what we're up to yeah um and, and we're still here and uh, you know uh, the other thing john john was saying he's had a lot of phone calls i have as well about people wanting to go pigeon shooting our office is still manned um at the minute so if people do have inquiries they can phone up they can ask they'll get liz or emma in the office there'll only be one person there a day but they will get one of them and they'll direct their call to john myself charles Alan Barrett, it's firearms. So, <clears throat> so our service is still operating as normal, and, and members will be able to get hold of us through all the usual, all the usual channels. It just might be a little bit, bit, bit more difficult to speak to the office because there's only one girl there in the office. That's that's the only issue that may be. If she's already taken a call, you know, whereas normally we've got three there. That's that's the only issue that people should come across really. But bear with us on that one. There's nothing we can do under the, the current situation. I think there's a very <laughs> split, and I think the majority of people are understanding that there is nothing that anyone can do to improve the situation. And then there's a very small proportion who uh, are unaccepting that the world has changed a little bit this last five, six weeks. Yeah. Hey, yeah. It's kind of everything. Yeah. Uh, so, one, sorry, Joe, I just said the one thing I'm slightly annoyed about is they haven't relaxed they, they want um, businesses to uh, be able to trade and, and send stuff they haven't relaxed the air rifle rules um, because I know at least 15 people who wanted to buy an air rifle to set an air rifle range up in their back garden and haven't been able to do so yeah. um, and I, I just think that's because we were talking about the mental health thing. There's no reason you can't do a mail order air. I'm not talking about shotguns and rifles. I'm talking about an air gun. Um, I think that should be relaxed whilst this is going on. They can reverse it once we're open again. But for the minute, I think they should relax that. I really do. Yeah. Or, um, I was going to say, uh, allow some kind of limited trading in retail, a bit like they do with many other shops that perhaps aren't vital but claim they are, it would be nice to be able to say, right, how about just a one-out, one-in policy? Yeah, yeah. no, no, I, I do, because I, I think that, like you were saying, the mental health thing is quite important, and people will, they do need an outlet, and, you know, whether, well, I was saying earlier, tennis courts, golf courses, fishing, these things should be allowed to go ahead. You know, you're not going well, maybe not golf, that just ruins everyone's day. Just with heavy restrictions, and I think that would be a wiser way of doing it, ongoing from at least, hopefully after this three weeks, is up. Yeah, I think so. I, th I think this three weeks will be the lockdown, then certain things will start to open, like they have in Austria and Spain and Italy are coming out now, so I think. Well, I think we'll be on the other side. With us up here, I mean, even like builders merchants are, are delivering now to the general public this week with us. 
Um, so they've they've relaxed a bit this this week. So I think hopefully, like Tim said, in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be in a in a different place again. That's that's the thing. If we, you know, a couple of weeks of more of this to to be able to go out a month six weeks earlier, that's that's got to be worth the price to pay now, isn't it? I I would agree with you wholeheartedly. So just to conclude, I have been wondering about the dough that's behind your head this entire time, Tim. Can you tell uh, us what this one? Well, it's a it's a pair I shot. Um, it's it's a mount I had done, so it's a it's a pair I shot together. It is Hi. why they're done like that. So it's a it's a pedestal mount. I just thought it looked rather nice. Um, it's really nice, but we've only for the whole thing your head's been covering up the buck. So I was like, "Why is that mounted behind him?" No, I use um, I use I use things like that on the NJPSC courses to show what they look. So, like. Yeah, to show what they look. Like. What I was more conscious about was that. Yeah, <laughs> 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 that's what I've been doing. For those listening, if those are listening on a podcast, Tim has antlers sticking out of the top of his head. <laughs> and we all know that he loves deer, but I'm not sure if he identifies it one at the moment. Yes, I've been I've been at a jaunty angle for the whole uh, the whole the whole time. <laughs> it doesn't look uh, it doesn't look too bad. I never picked up on that. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. New Christmas card. Christmas <laughs> card. Yeah, I'll get a red nose on. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for your time today um, and letting us into the NGO and what you're up to and, well, a few of the issues that's been going on recently. Thank you very much. Nice, thank nice you. And um, we'll, we'll catch up again soon. Let's hope so. Yeah. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you. Take care, John.